Hello, everybody. I'm Brent. I'm Darko. And this is Fede with the DevNull Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Episode 5 of the DevNull Podcast, The Container Special. Today, Kubernetes kills Docker. AWS goes multi-cloud. We talk about some Docker best practices and have a discussion on whether or not there is a future for crotchety old devs like us. All of this and more coming up right after this. So who wants to start with a little bit of a funny story that literally just happened today? Let's hear it. So you guys remember my password struggles and kind of my impending migration over to a hardware password manager? Didn't the YubiKey solve everything? Yeah, solved it really well. Um, so I'll just catch you up to speed on where that's all at. So I got I got the YubiKey this week and um, I've been sort of playing with the technology like I haven't done the mass migration to you know all my... Uh, one-time passwords. I have a, just a couple services on there. Um, and I've been playing around with a what I think is a really cool function of YubiKey, which is uh, the static password. So you can um, generate a fairly long static password. Uh, mine's, you know, 32 characters, mixed case, you know, special characters, all that good stuff. And the device supports like this concept of a long press. So you put your finger on it and wait two seconds and it will just like emit that that password that you've generated. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. So I like as part of this migration that I'm making to to the hardware keys, I kind of want to use longer, more secure passwords. Um, those are really hard to remember. So the device makes sense. So I started doing that um, on a couple services. Again, I'm I'm learning this this piece of tech and I want to make sure I understand it really well. Um, I got the YubiKey 5C Nano. So it's a USB-C. It's very, very small. It's like um, just a, you know, maybe three or four millimeters across. It just hangs out the side. And on my MacBook, I've got USB-C ports on both the left and the right side, sort of, you know, uh, directly to the left and right of the keyboard, kind of where your fingers might might rest. And so I'm chatting with one of our longtime clients, somebody we've known for a very, very long time, who's really technical too. Um, and on teams and in the middle of our, our, of our discussion, I move my hand and my hands are a little bit large. Um, I move my hand just slightly and I don't realize that my finger is now resting on the YubiKey doing the long press. So, so right in the middle of our chat, the YubiKey emits my password into the chat. And by default, it, it appends a CRLF or like a line feed carriage return an enter basically. And bam, there's my password right, right in the middle of our chat. Now, this guy that I'm talking to, um, it doesn't surprise me at all. There's a little bit of a hesitation and he just responds, YubiKey question mark, which I thought was hilarious. I'm not at all surprised that he uses one and is familiar with it, but apparently it's happened to him too. Um, so that is, that's what happened there. So now I'm, um, I'm changing my password <laughs> again. Oh, again. Um, yeah, again. Um, but I think I've got it solved. So I moved the YubiKey from the right side where just looking at how I use, and I, I wasn't cognizant of this before, obviously, how I use my MacBook, I tend to sort of rest my hand on the right side. So I've flopped it over to the left side and I haven't like remade the same mistake yet, but I thought I'd share the next, uh, the next episode of the saga of improved security. <laughs> That's funny. But, so, so should we get keys then, or should we avoid them instead? What do you think no, so far? No, I see this. This year was just a funny situation, and 
you know, I always do this when, when I, when I'm bringing a new piece of tech into like my daily life, I don't just put everything on it immediately. I kind of slowly integrate it because of little, little usability, things like this. I'm actually still very impressed with the technology, um, what it's capable of. Like, for example, if you use PGP in your personal life, you can actually have your PGP key stored there as well, which is pretty handy. That's cool. You can, using some software that Ubico gives you, you can like uh, copy one to another and make backups and things like that. So, you know, not as concerned about misplacing them as I was originally. I'm a big fan. Um, I really am. Even just using it for a couple of days. So it, it is going to be a part of, you know, my, my like digital life, especially things that need to be extra secure. But, you know, it's humorous, too. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's pretty darn it's pretty darn funny that that could uh, that that could happen. Um, and also really funny that whoever, you know, the, the person that was on the other end of that chat, like knew immediately what it was. So. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> yeah, quick question about the UIKIs because I haven't played with that yet. So where do you keep your backups? Like, suppose you lose it. Like, how do you record from that? Yeah, again, you can, a lot of places will allow you to um, register more than one hardware key uh, using that U2F standard. Um, if it's uh, just standard, like one-time password or the TOTP, which is like the ticking, you know, the time-based one-time one -time password, some will let you register more than one, uh, some won't, um, you know, in the software. But there is a way where you can actually take the 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 key that's specific to your user and type it in manually. And that's how I have it set up. I actually have two, one, which is the 5C Nano, and then I have the 5C NFC, which I, I'm planning to use with my with my iPhone, which has the near field communications device on it as well. So, it, it, you know, you need to fiddle around with it, but plenty of videos on YouTube to do it. I'm no genius and I figured it out. So um, you can definitely, definitely get it done. Okay, enough humor for one day. Um, again, this is an ongoing saga, a battle here. So, uh, if anything else like that happens, um, I'll be sure to to let to let folks know, and and we'll talk about you know in a later episode, sort of like the holistic experience after a couple of months using it. I'll give my full report on it. I do, however, want to talk about something that happened this week that I think is is pretty interesting um, for those that do the work that we do. Uh, if you're a developer or part of a DevOps team or both, um, uh, there was some pretty big news announced uh, out of the, the Kubernetes circle. So after version 1.2 of Kubernetes, um, Docker will no longer be supported. Um, Actually, I should say it will be deprecated. So after version 1.2, you'll start getting a message inside of Kubernetes when you uh, when you launch a Docker container. And then they're thinking sometime around the end of 2021, somewhere around version 1.23 at the earliest, uh, a key component of the Docker stack will no longer be supported uh, on Kubernetes. And that piece of the stack is a piece of software that they call uh, Docker Shim. And it's worth it's worth talking about um, at this moment. The reason it's worth talking about is um, I think a lot of folks that read the headline of that might be pretty concerned. Um, most people that I talk to kind of feel like Docker's and Kubernetes are synonymous with one another, and it's true at this moment in time. Most people that are using Kubernetes, I believe, um, are are using Docker inside of Kubernetes. So this feels like a really really big change. 
Um, some things that uh, that came out of this that that I didn't know that I kind of wanted to you know just discuss amongst this team as to why this happened, which I think are are pretty interesting. So it turns out that Docker, even though it's like probably the most widely adopted container tool out there, it's not compatible with um, this thing called CRI, which is the Container Runtime Interface. Um, Kubernetes is a container orchestration system that requires that the containers comply with CRI in order to work correctly. Um, and so that's that's really interesting that at some point that there was this disconnect uh, between Kubernetes and, and the Docker team. Now, the way this works um, in the existing world, when you build Docker, it's actually inserting this piece of software called Docker Shim, which is the go-between between like CRI compatible and, and non-CRI compatible uh, software. So a lot of folks that are using this don't even know that that's actually happening. Well, the Kubernetes team... I think rightfully in this case, I'm kind of on their side here, have decided that like, look, Docker is now becoming so big. Um, there's a lot of bloat there, a lot of support for UI and things that um, simply aren't needed in the runtime environment. In addition, in order for Docker to even work, we have to support this thing called Docker Shim, which is getting more and more complicated with every single release. Um, so they've basically just came out and said, hey, we're not doing it anymore. You know, there will be a deprecation and a slow phase out. But the right path forward is, uh, you know, a container that is CRI compliant. And that's basically what they've what they've said. I've kind of talked about the timeline here. Like the the world is not going to end tomorrow. You know, there's going to be at least a year worth here. Additionally, you know, most of our customers are running uh, running Kubernetes in a managed environment. I don't have many that are um, running their own Kubernetes cluster. So it's very likely that the big three being, you know, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, and uh, and Google will have like a slightly different approach or at least a, a, a mechanism for people to, um, to sort of safely, uh, uh, to safely migrate, you know, from their existing container approach um, to one that is compatible, like something like uh, Container D. Yeah. So I read I read some stuff about this. I've been I've been following a lot of the the tech news coming out this week because rein, reinvent from AWS is also ongoing. So I stumbled upon this a few days ago when it came out, and I think most of the most of the titles that I saw, and there was even an official blog post by the Kubernetes team, like "Do not panic." Like this is this does not mean the end of Docker. This like things are gonna go pretty much as usual. Are gonna continue working, but they're gonna be like on the long run. There's gonna be some need for changes, and I I think that's okay. I mean, when you're planning that far ahead, I think I think that's that's a good thing. It gives you ample time to actually plan for changes for those changes. So yeah, so I did read briefly about this, um, you know, one thing that I noticed is that Docker images are going to continue to work, right? So here's a question from a developer standpoint. Why should I care about this? Like, what does that mean to me as a developer? Yeah, it, it, is, a, it is a really good question. So I think for the most part, Docker images will, will continue to work. Um, I did find an article, a pretty technical one, talking about like, hey, how do I know for sure whether my images or my application are going to continue to compile and run? Um, we, if we swap out 
the container implementation for one that is like CRI compliant. And I found sort of like a checklist of things that you might want to um, verify uh, about, you know, the way your Docker um, builds run. And those are things like, you know, how is logging happening if you're writing out to disk? If we're if you're doing anything with the Docker um, socket, or in, a lot of folks call it like the Docker sock, there are some node scripts out there that um, may have some hardwiring into a specific Docker implementation that might need to be looked after. Um, you know, things that are specific to like a hosted cluster, uh, like Cube Control plugins that require the Docker CLI. You know, obviously there's that Docker kind of dependency there um, to look out for. But for the most part, um, container D, which is, I think, the implementation of, of, of the container standard um, that most folks are recommending as being sort of the easiest port from Docker to, you know, to, to this world. Um, and in fact, Docker is built on top of container D. So there's that, you know, sort of already there's that alignment there should go pretty simply. You know, if you can do Docker build and end up with a you know, with a resource and put it to the registry, chances are it's going to it's going to continue to run. However, there are things out there that you know. Once again, if you've built in some dependency to the Docker stack uh, in your application, you're going to want to unroll that and and try it long before um, that deprecation goes to a full removal. Just so you know that things are are going to continue to to function. But can we not? Can we just not update the version of Kubernetes to one point two and like keep it at one point one forever? Docker for life, right? <laughs> yeah, you can do whatever you want on your cluster, Darko. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess it's going to be a bit different because basically there are, there are two implementations, right? If you're running your own cluster and if you're using a managed service, so if you're running a your own cluster, then you get like the full control and then you can indefinitely postpone that uh, that update to 1.2 version or, or just to get away from that deprecation, which is obviously not not recommended. But but in sense of like managed services there, I assume it's going to be a deadline after which even the managed services are no longer going to support that. So I think these these things these changes should be tackled sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think that's really important. If you look at a piece of technology like Kubernetes, regardless of your implementation of it, whether you have your own clusters that you manage or you use in the managed service, the rate of change for these they're really stacks of technologies. It's not it's not one piece of technology. The rate of change is extremely high, and whenever that's the case. I've found just you know through history there are more and more opportunities for vulnerabilities, um, like bugs that could be catastrophic or security um, concerns can crop up that you really do need to stay up with um, with the implementation with the team that is supporting it. Um, they're you know as fast as things happen they're reacting to it, so you're actually doing yourself a pretty large disservice in my opinion by saying like hey. You know, I, I'm too afraid to change my container implementation at the application level. I'm just going to now support this crappy, you know, cluster software that you know could could introduce tons of vulnerabilities uh, into my organization. I don't think that is the right path at all. I think the plan here, for at least this is what I intend to recommend to my customers, is going to, you know, 
beyond version 1.2, you know, going into early next year, start to play around with swapping um, the container implementation from Docker to container D straight and um, use the same flow that we use for everything else, run unit integration tests, um, you know, end to end or functional tests if we have them and just see if anything changes. Chances are in most of the software that we write, things are going to continue to operate as they have um, as they have before. And if they don't, well, then we'll, you know, we'll re-implement as, as needed. But I think that's the right approach. You want to stay up with it. Certainly the managed service providers are going to um, probably force a lot of businesses' hands. Because again, I don't find a lot of companies out there that are experts at managing their own Kubernetes clusters. That is a very complicated piece of technology. It's way easier to just pay Amazon, Microsoft, or Google a little bit more every month and have them do it way, way better. That's my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. And but the thing, the thing I'm struggling, actually, I'm not struggling. It's pretty obvious, but uh, the reason why why this change is occurring is to to simplify it a bit. Because is it because of that Docker UI layer that's built on top of everything to make it more user friendly and like more developer friendly? And everything is that why that is causing that break breaking of bonds between Docker and Kubernetes or you know, that's a great question. I'm not really sure because you know, the simple answer for me would be like, you know, hey Docker a Docker team, why not just make your your container CRI compliant and then things are and run as as normal. Um I don't I don't quite understand the decisioning on on that side of uh, of the equation, um, you know, this Docker is is kind of here to stay. I feel, but the further away you get, your like how I'm running on my laptop versus how it's running in Kubernetes. You introduce, in my opinion, an opportunity for a competing technology to outdo you, and that is the sure path to irrelevance in this world. I think. For me, when I started playing around with Docker and then using it heavily it was this notion that I could run it on my MacBook and it's going to operate largely the exact same way as it would on, you know, ECS and Fargate. And if it doesn't, it's probably infrastructure, right? It really solves a lot of those sort of middle layer software problems that we used to fight with in operations for so long. Um, and to me, that's the selling point, man, I'm there. And Suddenly now we're kind of saying like, hey, I use Docker, but my implementation is container D out on Kubernetes. You know, don't let that get too wide before you correct that. That's my opinion. And if I was on the Docker team, that's how I would be thinking about it. Is there any point in the Docker team actually trying to make the future Docker images CRI compliant? Is that actually possible? It, it is. And I think, I mean, that's what's happening with um, with the Docker shim tooling right now right so when when uh, based on the reading that i did on this and and this is like way deeper than most people usually get when they when they're understanding their infrastructure um when you do like a docker build to then be deployed out to kubernetes it's not the full stack it is a cri compliant through the shim you know image that can run inside of um inside of kubernetes um i think one of the other points that I've seen made on the Docker side of this argument is that Docker isn't just for the runtime. Um, there's a lot more to it. In fact, you know, I found a couple of articles on this where they say like Docker isn't one thing. It's really a stack of things and it's, it's 
capable of doing many, many things, including, you know, driving a user interface and, and like, heck, you can even run windows inside of it. So, you know, in a lot of sense, there isn't this, this direct correlation between Docker and containers. Docker is actually bigger than containers. It just so happens that it can emit a container that can run in the runtime. And that's how we're using it inside of Kubernetes. So that, you know, that, that conversation starts to get really convoluted and really technical and really deep when you're trying to do all those different things. It, it, it's probably not just as simple as like, hey, now we're CRI uh, compliant. Again, and going back to it, a lot of folks out there um, are probably using container D and they don't even know it right now. And so the work to be done here is not like a mass migration from one tech to another. It's really like, hey, can I run my application uh, on container D without the Docker shim? Um, and the Docker shim is really more for those th those pieces that are addressing like, you know, uh, very specific dependencies that that. Um, that are inside of Docker. Some of the things that we've already talked about, I'll put a link to that on the show notes so you can kind of see there's like maybe 10 different um, attributes of an application that if they're if you're doing that, you might want to test um, without Docker shim and use only container D. And if things are working, great. You just continue on as is. And if they're not, then you might need to sort of rewrite that piece of your implementation so that it is compatible with, with container D. So... Well, this is kind of a, it's a new piece of information or a new piece of news. So we'll continue tracking it if there are other, any other like major developments um, falling out of this. Primarily um, for me will be what the big three from a hosting perspective plan to do with this information. We'll report back. And as always, um, all this information will be linked up in the show notes uh, so that you can do your own reading, do your own research. Since we're talking about Docker, I was just thought it would be useful to mention a few things. Um from a best practice perspective that I have seen in, in different projects. Um, stuff like, you know, when you're using Docker, make sure that you bind your services to localhost. I have seen that happen multiple times where people have stuff running in their machines uh, and it's not bound to localhost. So I, th I think that's something worth paying attention to. Um, what um, what happens if you, like, for example, don't, don't bind it to localhost? Is that... <laughs> well, it's available for other people to connect to it. And if whatever it is that you're running has a vulnerability on it, somebody could exploit it. So it's uh, it's always a good practice to pay attention to that. And I have seen some machines running stuff that they should not be running. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, other stuff. And this is common sense, but I think since we're discussing Docker, I think it's worth, um, you know, just briefly mention it. Like when you're pulling images, make sure you pull from trusted sources. Um, and if you don't read the Docker file, like make sure you understand what's there. Um, make sure that there are no major security vulnerabilities on it. And then <laughs> uh, one major one that always drives me the wrong way is when I see people pulling stuff from, from the internet and piping it, to, piping it, to, piping that into a shell for execution without reading whatever it is that they're pulling. Uh, that always bothers me. I don't know if you guys, have, if you guys have seen that. I suppose you have. But. I mean, how do you think I got Oh My Zosh installed in my shell? <laughs> they, give you, they give you one simple command that you just paste in, um, and boom, you have color coded uh, GitHub compatible directory structures. It's that simple. And exactly. obviously, you need to run it with sudo. Yeah, of course. 
superpowers. Um, but you know what? It's like becoming more and more common. Like I, I see it everywhere in, in documentation. Just execute this. And yeah. there's no, you know, people don't, I don't know. I don't, they don't care. Um, it, it is, it is super common. Um, and, and there's a lot of this going on. So with, you know, sort of building software in this day and age, most software applications have a tremendous number of dependencies. Um, and I want to touch on that because this is beyond even Docker, in yeah. my opinion, like take a look at like the way node works, for example, you know, when you run NPM install, you are installing, you know, in some cases, hundreds of libraries that you don't have direct knowledge of that sort of come in the dependency stack. Um, and that can be a lot of responsibility for a single developer to understand what they've included. And in fact, that that entire like trust based approach has been um, manipulated in the past. There have been some libraries that have been taken over by, you know, nefarious people to inject, you know, code that does bad things into many, many applications simply from that dependency tree. So I think, you know, whenever you're dealing with open source software, I think this is a, this is something you just need to be really smart about and do some research on. Okay. I always look for libraries and technologies that have, you know, active communities that aren't, you know, sitting for two years without anybody managing them. Those I think are ripe for people to take advantage of. And in the Docker world, you know, I always think about the container that I build my application on top of, like, what is actually in there? How do I know that? Well, the good news is with Docker registry and these tools, you can sort of work backwards and find out like what's installed and who's managed it, who pushed the latest update and those types of things. But how many people do that every time you spin up? Uh, Not many. Yeah. Exactly. Um, now that you mentioned that node, I think it's impossible for a single dev or a small team of devs to even know what they're running. That's a very good point. Yeah, it's a... Uh, Yes, tough. I don't know how, how it can be solved. I mean, yeah, it's, it is true. It has been exploited in the past. Yeah. I So I've seen one really good solution to it. Unfortunately, it's it's pretty expensive too. But, you know, Fede, you and I use this, um, uh, it, that tool called White Source, which yes. um, walks your entire dependency tree. And it not only checks it for security, security vulnerabilities, known ones, um, but it also gives you the ability to understand what licenses you've pulled in which for many companies can be a can be a deal breaker. And, you know, the white source is not paying us <laughs> to talk about this at all. But I found that to be kind of a novel way of, of dealing with it. And I think there are other um, tools out there that you can use probably many um, to manage that. You're right. It's very difficult for an individual developer to know that I'm much more fond of the approach like we use in our, in, you know, in our services where um, we plug that into continuous integration. You know, we've got like pre-commit hooks that launch that maybe run some of these tools to help us understand, like, just what have we included uh, into, um, you know, into our application. But to your point, Fede, I mean, there's always going to be somebody out there who copies and pastes directly from Stack Overflow or whatever. I mean, you see it, you see it more, more than I would care to admit. To admit, you're kind of like looking at a piece of code and you're like, man. Where did that come from? It doesn't seem to fit in any way, shape, and form with the code around it. <laughs> Do a little Google searching, and man, you find an article. <laughs> it's happened to me many, many times. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, it's a lot of place. It's a lot of place, and it always bothers me because it's like, what happened to checking 
you know, making sure that you understand what you're executing, that it's coming from a reliable source, checking the integrity of data, like all of that goes out the window when you execute something that you just pull from a random website. Even if it is a website that you trust, that website, you know, the instructions that you, you're pulling, they, you know, it could be compromised. I have an interesting question for you guys. Have you actually ever seen the Stack Overflow homepage? <laughs> Not once in my life. I don't think so, no. <laughs> I mean, between the three of us, we have seen, we have opened Stack Overflow so many times. I don't think I've ever seen the homepage. I would be willing to bet that for me alone, we're talking over 100,000 times. 100,000 visits over my over my career. Yeah. The only other the only other like interesting piece of information I have about Stack Overflow, people always like to talk about this is that it's written on the Microsoft Stack, which at one point in time people would be like, "I don't believe you. There's no way that that website is like got SQL Server behind it." It's way more believable now, but that that's like those are the two things I know about Stack Overflow. <laughs> I didn't know. I that. use it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's like ASP or Wow. EV6 or C I don't know. It's one of those on on uh, MSSQL. Oh wow! I did and not know page, that. Yeah, I have no idea what the homepage looks like. I know they have different Stack Overflows for different topics, so I I check those. But um, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. I never thought of that. But yeah, I um I just went there first time in life. <laughs> right there. Like? <laughs> you you got to experience it for yourself, man. I can't I can't tell you about. The homepage of Stack Overflow, you have to see it. It's like the Matrix. I wonder if they're going to see a spike in the analytics of number of requests to their homepage after this podcast goes out. Wouldn't that be funny if like on their big dashboard with all of their DevOps and, and like devs, if the spikes to the homepage rise, they're like, whoa, wait a minute, something's off here. This can't be right. <laughs> Nobody ever comes directly to the homepage. It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, that's a, and good, that's a good one, Darko. I I really appreciate that. I'm laughing. Yeah, I got another funny story about um, about something you mentioned earlier about dependencies. I don't know if you read this. This was a while back about the. I think the title was the eleven lines of code that broke the internet. So. It's about this developer who had an open source project. He put an NPM module uh, out there and it was left pad, I think. It was about padding string on the left, like super simple code, 11 lines of code. And just to cut it short, like through a series of unfortunate events, he's forced to take down his project from NPM. <laughs> the amount of the other projects that were dependent on that simple function for left padding a string broke the half of the internet. <laughs> like suddenly random things like, and you would not think to, to check this kind of stuff. Like we take these like super simple libraries and projects and like dependencies so for granted, literally, that we don't, don't consider something like that, this a breaking point. But it is actually a major breaking point yeah <laughs> that is a funny story i do remember that uh, we had a bunch of projects that broke because of it in other tech news from this week like i mentioned before like this week is the aws reinvent uh, annual conference going on for the first time is online it's free it's 
it lasts for three weeks actually this is the longest that i've seen a conference running wow who's uh who's playing who's headlining the musical event i don't know i haven't checked that actually i saw that on the first day they had a they had a talk about how to do dinner in a one sheet pan or something like that I did uh, not check that, but it might be useful to, to look. I, I was wondering if they would, because that's been a long tradition for reInvent to have like some big band like Metallica or something like that play. I was wondering if they were going to bring that along. Anyway, not to de- derail you or distract you, Darko. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So one of one of the bigger news that, that came out, there were already a couple of fun ones and we can't cover all of them in, in a single podcast, but if... If they're setting the bar this high this early in the conference, I wonder what we're gonna see in the next two weeks. So I'm I'm really excited to see what they come out with. But the one that really caught my eye was the fact that for the first time ever, AWS sort of quietly went into the multi-cloud world. And this is this is the first time they've ever done something like that. I'm talking specifically about the announcement of the ECS Anywhere and the EKS Anywhere services, which coincidentally is, again, we're going back to containers and Kubernetes and and Docker. But in a very simplified form, what these services allow you to do is basically run, take ECS, for example. You run your containers, you have tasks on them. So... This basically ECS Anywhere allows you to run your tasks on any other infrastructure outside of AWS. So you could potentially be running your tasks on Azure. You can be running it on Google Cloud. You can even run it on-prem if you want to, but then it's going to get managed by your AWS console. So that this is super interesting. This is a major step forward and it's not a first time that we're seeing something like this come out from, like you said, the the big tree uh, that we're calling them. So Azure and Google Cloud already have similar services to this, but AWS's uh, sort of motto so far has been the one cloud provider to rule them all, to, to use the reference. So this is this is a big step. I, they didn't announce it as such. So they never in the presentation, they used multi-cloud or hybrid infrastructure or anywhere. So they sort of like slide it in there like quietly. So here I am thinking about what you've told us in kind of a, a slightly slightly different way. So if if Microsoft and Google have been doing this for a while, this is probably their strategy to like gain market share on somebody like Amazon. And so maybe Amazon is doing this as sort of like, hey, you know, you can remain with us no matter what deal you get out of Microsoft. Because I say that um, some of the deals that I've heard about recently in in sort of my technology community about people going to Azure as opposed to like, you know, AWS are pretty hot and pretty hard to pass up. So may, maybe this is sort of just a, another way for Amazon to try to try to stay as, as you know, king of the mountain. I don't I don't I don't really know. But it's interesting that you say that like Microsoft and 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 you know Google on G Cloud have been doing this for a while. I wonder if I wonder if anybody we know is doing this like in production. I I don't know. First I've heard of it. Yeah. We we need to check this. It's it's actually quite interesting. But it it got me thinking like this kind of stuff like 
where do we go next? Like, what what is if you think about like let's say five years into the future from now? Like, there's another news actually. You you sort of brushed it up on it. I don't know if you saw it or you just accidentally mentioned it. But another of the topics from from the reinvent another announcement was that lambdas actually now support containers. So you can actually get your container deployed to a Lambda and have it running. So my my thoughts were actually, if I look forward five years, I want to see, I love Lambdas. So I think that they're awesome. They're a pretty useful tool to, to do, uh, to have. Um, and I think I want to see software running in Lambdas everywhere. So I want to see Lambdas some lambdas running on AWS, some running on Google Cloud, each getting most of uh, most of the cloud providers they can, but ultimately they all collaborating into a single software. That would be my my vision of of the short future. I would say in the next five years. I mean, m- maybe that's where where all this is going. Like you're sort of describing a convergence. Right? How long is it going to be before all of these technologies are really just the same thing? And we've sort of changed architectures fully into um, on demand instead of, you know, sort of always running, which is if you look at like how we how the the pace of take Amazon, because they were kind of the first to really um, to really do this. You know, your first move into Amazon back in the day was EC2. And the difference was. You know, I had a server in my closet and now it's in the cloud, just another computer, right? Um, Then you sort of like start moving up that stack of like, well, you know, some days I need five of those servers and some days I only need two. So you start building in some elasticity to to like your hosting. And then it's more like, you know, hey, I don't need to run the full operating system. I just need this, you know, and now you're into containers and then like, Hey, maybe I don't need to run anything unless there's a workload and now you're serverless or Lambda. Like it's, yeah. it's, you know, maybe it's maybe where this is going is that there's a convergence of all these technologies and it's just, you know, this code that's perfectly abstract from, from any hardware implementation yeah. that you push out there and it can run anywhere you want <laughs> for any reason. I would say one interesting thing, there's still a network and routing component to this. So somebody needs to be the, unless there's a fundamental change on the way the internet works, somebody needs to own that DNS record and where it points. Um, That is something that, um, you know, that I, I feel like maybe sort of like a limiting factor there. You know, a lot of folks use like Route 53 on Amazon and I'm a huge fan of it. But that sort of puts, you know, your 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 initial gatekeeper in the Amazon yep. realm. Like, do you, can you multi-cloud your DNS? Not not really, <laughs> right now, right? So, I don't know what your thoughts are there, but like maybe that is where where it's going. And pretty soon, the stack of applications that you see when you log into Amazon or Microsoft or whatever will just like perfectly simplify. Wouldn't that be great? That would be awesome. And that's actually a good point. I didn't actually think about that. As long as you get to execute whatever you want and they don't lock you in. That's <laughs> that's my one concern that you get locked into a specific vendor. Um, yeah. You know, what's interesting, though, is like what I've found 
um, dealing with these these groups uh, and, the, and these companies for as long as I have. Like Amazon's way of locking you in is not like the way a, a technical person usually thinks about. Like it's not that they want to lock you in by using their tech. They lock you in by offering the cheapest prices and the most services. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. um, it, there's nothing that I've done at, at least that I like require Amazon to be on. But if I look at like the competing priorities of, you know, my business, you know, they, they do a good job. Uptime is great. If you architect correctly, um, the price goes down pretty regularly. They're always asking me if I need help. So, you know, how is that going to compete in priority with like, say, some features that I'm going to build just to save a little extra money? So, like, I, again, I don't think. I don't think at least this has been my experience. If you have different ones, I'd love to, I'd love to hear them, but I, I don't think that their game is like, Oh, we're going to get you stuck on this technology and then you're never going to be able to leave. That just hasn't been the pattern that I've seen from any of the three. I mean, it has been a great experience. I think it makes sense to use uh, the cloud providers for what they provide. Uh, but there is still like a corner in my brain that worries about that, like long-term what does what does that mean? You know, they they make it very easy for you to plug and play different things and, and build cool functionality. Um, you don't need to be you don't even need to be an expert or a domain expert. You can just use it, and that's awesome. But um, I do wonder though, like if you, uh, as you use it more and more, you become more and more um, tied to to their uh, you know environment. But um, yeah, I, I just got one, you know, this is, we're talking about cloud and everything There's, and where things are going. Something that I was thinking this morning um, is that, ooh, are we going to end up building software in a cloud environment? Like, for example, like instead of having the, the source code on, on your machine, you're accessing a cloud environment and you're programming using your browser. Is it going that way? Like, and if it is going that way, like, what do you guys think? Like, do you, will you be, will you use something like that? Do you like the idea? Do you hate the idea? There's, there's actually, I think we're already there up to the point. So there's actually, I think, um, a Dutch startup. Uh, it's called Code Sandbox. I learned about it, I think, two days ago. Uh, Somebody posted in Slack in some channel or something. So Code Sandbox is like all in your browser development studio, and you can start up with a bunch of different, I think it's mostly front-end projects like React or Vue or uh, HTML5. And it gives you the entire, it's like rapid rapid development. So you, you have the entire uh, code in the cloud. It... It has an integration to GitHub and it can actually deploy to Netlify. And there was one another service. Don't remember the exact name, but you do everything through your browser. You don't need, you don't need anything locally. You just open up a workspace. You can collaborate with people on it, like real time sharing. So we're there up to a point. It's not that hard to imagine that. To no, it's honest. not. It's At happening least it, right now. It's yeah. happening right now. But uh, I just don't like the idea of it. Um, well, I mean, you know, th there are some pros, like you don't have to worry about setting anything up. It's already there. It's available. It's easy. 
but then um, you lose control too. Like you're not running things on your machine anymore. Um, this is tied to, you know, I mentioned like companies logging you in. This is another way where they can log people in. Maybe not us, but the newer generations, you know, they may run everything via a browser and that's all they know. And if that happens, like they, you know, they're, they're trapped in that environment. So at some point, your machine will not be powerful enough to run the entire software that it needs. We're already seeing this with like the Docker images being too big or taking up too much CPU or memory from your laptop or whatnot. And we we have in constantly increasing hardware requirements for this. So the logical next step, at least for me, and this might be the DevOps in me talking, but is to move to the cloud. So if we use something like disposable environments, which is like bring up, test, you, whatever you need to do and kill it. Again, like Brent mentioned, on demand, you don't need to run it all the time. So it just, just when there's a workload, that might be useful because at some point your, your laptop is not going to be able to handle it or your PC or whatever. Yeah, I mean, this is, for me, this is a part where I'm actively trying not to be a crotchety old man, right? <laughs> when I look at what it takes to be a productive software developer now, it's a pretty different skill set from like when I started, which is, you know, maybe a little more than 20 years ago, right? And I would say 20 years before that, what you needed to know to be a productive software developer, again, different set of technologies. So this isn't a new thing. There's always been like these abstractions that have come along to make it easier to make, to make it easier for people to focus on like what's really important, which is the challenge that we're trying to solve. Um, There's a part of me that dies inside. For example, every time I see a new developer, often fairly young that doesn't know how to use like Git on the command line, which I can't live without, but I see it and guess what? They're fantastic. So I try not to judge, (laughs) But I see it, you know, um, and they run circles around what I can do. So, like, I, I really should have <laughs> nothing to say. Um, but for me, it's that like the the next generation of of builders, right, are 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 going to probably use different tools and solve different challenges with those tools. And I think, I mean, I think that's a perfectly fine thing. Um, you know, f- just just happened to me, so it's fresh in my mind. If you are doing React development and you're using like live reload and those kinds of things, it's fantastic. It's also a real pain in the butt if you don't have things set up perfectly. Um, you know, imagine if that was just like go to a web page and boom, I'm I'm not spending any time thinking about that. Just like the mechanics of that, I'm just coding. You know, maybe that does make me a better developer. So I don't know. <laughs> I just went and looked at the at the code sandbox place. It, it like I this is the first I've seen of it. So this is not certainly something that everyone is doing, obviously. But it it, it could be a glimpse into the future. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's like it, I think it's getting that way, even though I don't like it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I probably won't use it, but I think it's getting that way. The thing for me is like what's the price that we pay for using that, for that convenience? And what I see or what I start thinking about is, number one, uh, you lose control. Um, that may or may not be a good thing. And and I, I get it. Like, there are different, you know, there are valid points on the other side, too. But the, the, other, the other stuff that I start to think about is, like, 
uh, vendor locking and control uh, monitoring like essentially you know developers become they just, they're connecting things like you know plug and play everything and because you're using cloud services now there are more tools for companies to carry out surveillance and monitor what people are doing all the time and like a bunch of stuff that i don't I don't know if I necessarily agree with. So I'm I'm looking at it from that angle. I'm I, I'm not sure I like what I'm what I'm seeing. So um, anyway, that's that's pretty. Much. I, I was just thinking about that this morning. So I wanted to know what you guys thought. Uh, yeah. I mean, back in my day, we used to have to code uphill both ways in the snow. You know. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you, man. <laughs> that- <laughs> the DevNull Podcast is a bi-weekly science and technology podcast brought to you by Darko Klincharski, Brent Kastner, and Fede Zegarzazu. Hey, and if you guys have any feedback for our show, do let us know. You can find our contact details in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>